Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long, and now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom, James Long, and all of our wonderful Jerusalem Lights listeners here in the beautiful month of Adar. Shalom, Rabbi Richman, and, and everybody on your end of the, the big pond and in the Richman home. Um, they're in a secret location in Yerushalayim. Shalom and Purim Sameach to Jim Long and to all of our wonderful listeners. Shalom, Rabbi. Are you getting ready for the for the big day for uh, for Purim at your house? Uh, well, um, I, gosh, to some extent, we're definitely getting ready. But before Purim comes the fast of Esther, which of yeah. course is tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, the sixteenth of March, which is why we are. Um, recording our podcast a little early this week, one day early and posting it early because we'd like to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to hear a little bit about the fast of Esther, hopefully before, or at least during that day, because it's really a, a, an unsung day, a very, very special day with, with powerful spiritual dynamics and powerful spiritual potential. And so I want to talk about that with you a little bit, Jim. When we look back through history and we, and we look at the events and the history of the Jewish people, it really, it really continues to have a dynamic that's very hidden, very concealed in many ways. There's th these patterns in time, you know, like it, it's like this whole concept that we've been speaking about. Uh, maybe I've been speaking about it too much the past couple of weeks, but, <clears throat> you know, both in the podcast and in our videos, we've been talking about Hashem's presence being hidden and it, and it, and it being revealed. And of course, that's the core of, of the source of the joy of, of Purim, this revelation of Hashem's closeness to us, of his oneness, of his love. The thing is, yes, there, this is a, a design in time, a divine design. And it seems to be the, the very fabric of history itself. Uh, speaking of fabric, again, as we mentioned, the, the, the whole concept of Mikilat um, Esther, which literally means the revelation of the hidden, the story of Esther, the story of Purim. It's when we read the narrative of the scroll of Esther, it is an exercise in Hashem's presence being totally concealed. His name is not mentioned. And um, all the events appear to be disconnected and totally random. And yet uh, they formed this, this fabric, this tapestry. And, and it, it could be said that all of our lives are the same thing. You know, everything that we go about, all, all of our machinations throughout life, they are connected and we can connect the dots if we look for Hashem's hand. And we're, we're also kind of weaving this tapestry, this story, our own Megillah Esther, as it were, you know? And so the thing is that while Hashem's name is not mentioned uh, explicitly in the scroll of Esther, there is a, a very beautiful tradition that uh, every time the word Hamelech is mentioned, which means the king, but it's not connected to the name Achashverosh. Mm -hmm. It means Hashem himself. Right. In other words, some, sometimes the verses say Hamelech Achashverosh, the king of Achashverosh, and sometimes it just says Hamelech, like Esther, for example, says, I have not been called to the king. The 30 days feeling, in other words, kind of like isolated, vulnerable, alone. Who is she to speak to Hashem? Who is she to come? And implore the king. You know that the scribes who write the the scroll of Esther, you know, um, purchasing and and owning one's own scroll of Esther is a is a very beautiful thing. That way, a person can follow along 
in the synagogue from a, from a kosher parchment, you know, and one can read it for themselves, you know, because there are very specific laws about how the sacred books of Torah have to be written. So there is a, a, a um, custom in writing the scroll of Esther, there is a, there is a kind of like a, um, it's called a hidur. That means kind of like the, the, the most beautiful and, and, the, and the most um, uh, kind of the greatest tributes to the, to the mitzvah of, of the scroll of Esther is when in the, in the handwritten columns on the parchment, in the, in the handwritten you know, columns of the lines, the top of each column begins with the word hamelech. Oh. It's kind of like, you know what it is, Jim? It's like a wink. It's like anyone who knows this story, who knows this backdrop that, that, you know, there is this deep idea that when the scroll refers to the king, right, air quotes, it's the king himself. And so kind of like as a, as a beautiful embossment, as it were, of that seal on the story, as we're reading it, the columns kind of, kind of like as a, as a bow and reverentially refer to Hashem in the beginning of each section. It writes the names of the sons of Haman. Isn't the first uh, letter of the first son elongated to suggest a noose? There's quite a bit of lore, L-O-R-E, associated with the writing of the, uh, and the appearance of the names of, uh, yeah. of the sons of, of, uh, of Haman. As you know, there's a, a, a powerful idea about those letters of Torah, which are written especially either extra large or extra small. I actually spoke about that last week as well. So there's so much to it. There's so much incredible <clears throat> tradition. Well, I just wanted to speak a little bit about the, the, the fast of Esther for the benefit of everybody that um, would like to join the people of Israel in this fast, which again begins uh, wherever you are <clears throat> at dawn on Wednesday, March 16th is the, is the 13th of Adar. And of course this fast is, it, it, on the one hand, it commemorates, you know, that Esther, when Mordechai sent a message to Esther to uh, that perhaps this is the time, uh, such a time as this, that she found herself in this odd predicament of her, of this Jewish woman being in the palace of King Ahasuerus, and he said, this is such a time as this. And so um, she asked that um, everyone fast for her. And she also, she said, she and her and her um, and her servants, her maids, would fast for three days before going in an unauthorized fashion, but before the king. And uh, the idea is that the fast of Esther is actually a later fast historically. It's it's not mentioned um, mm-hmm. um, explicitly in scripture itself. It's not even mentioned in the Talmud. It's it's from a later period, from the the period of the Gaonim, and because of the fact that the fast. It's definitely an ancient custom, but I'm saying on the timeline of the Jewish people, it's a, it was introduced a little bit later. And therefore, some of the laws relating to the fast are more lenient. In other words, uh, first of all, it's one of the shorter fasts. In other words, it's not like Yom Kippur or Tisha B'Av, which begins the night before. It begins in the morning. It begins before dawn, and it ends a little bit after sunset. A little bit after sunset. And uh, in fact, a person could really get up uh, before dawn and uh, have a cup of coffee or eat a little bit if they want to have extra strength for that day. And also, uh, as far as lenience is concerned, let's let's say that a person is not really feeling that well, you know, uh, it really has a headache. And certainly, let's say a, a woman who's expecting or nursing, uh, there are people that definitely have leniencies. And if they're not feeling well, they certainly don't have to finish the fast. But there is an idea still in all that this day is very, very powerful. 
and very, very uh, propitious. And that's that's what I wanted to speak about. And and here again, <clears throat> you know, the idea of fasting, and I know I know we've mentioned this numerous times when we discuss the various fasts throughout the year of the sacred calendar of the people of Israel, but the idea of fasting is not about torturing yourself. It's not about suffering. It's not, oh, I'm going to, you know, like um, <clears throat> torment my flesh by, by fasting. That's not the Jewish idea of fasting at all. Although actually on a deep level, there, there even is an idea that when we burn our own calories like that, because we are not, we are not um, eating <clears throat> so that that in a way is almost like bringing an offering on the altar in the temple because I'm burning up my own fat as it were by, by not eating. Right. So on a symbolic level, but the, but, but the real, you know, crux of the, of the idea of why we fast is very simply because it makes us feel more on edge. It, It is a vehicle that, that puts us in touch with our own very, very vulnerable humanity and the sense of the transient, the sense of the fleeting, because there, there's no time that you're more kind of like, if you'll pardon me, like a little bit arrogant feeling, and you know, we're satiated, satiated and feeling like basically like on top of the world, you know, because like when a person is full, they're very me oriented, you know, that's, that's human nature. So they're not, they're not thinking that they're that they're vulnerable at all, you know, but the nature of the human condition is such that if we just go without food for a little while, especially coffee for some of us, then suddenly we feel, Oh, I'm not so, I'm not so hot after all. I'm really, I'm really kind of like a, a very transient being. And so the idea is that it is a, it is a um, device that helps us to soften our hearts, get in touch with, our inner feelings and cry out to Hashem because yeah. it's, you know, it's very, it makes us more conducive to a sincere thought of repentance because we feel more dependent on Hashem, closer to Hashem. We're, we're a little bit more, um, you know, <clears throat> thinking about how much we need him because we frankly feel that we are not in charge anymore. It all yeah. it takes is just a little bit of abstention. Of course, of course, the Jewish, you know, the Torah idea of a fast is, it, you know, it's not like some people go on like a Jewish a Jews fast or something. It's a Jew fast, and and that means that we have no intake whatsoever, no water, no nothing that day. I just want to um, um, encourage everyone. Um, this is very fascinating what you what you're up to now, Jim. <clears throat> I just want to encourage everyone before you continue on that vein regarding this fast, the fast of Esther. Um, all those people who are listening. All those people who, uh, to whom the idea of an opportunity to cry out to Hashem speaks to, and all those people who are invested in wanting to feel closer to Hashem and in wanting to cry out, you know, this is what I have to share. That's so important. The, the idea is again, uh, as I mentioned, the fast is you know it, it's a it's a later fast, and it's you know it's not it's it's, it's not such a long day, and it's you know it's it's easier certainly than been fasting on a on a longer a longer summer fast like like Tisha B'Av or even on Yom Kippur but the idea here is not that I wanted to stress for everyone is not the aspect of fasting which is an individual decision if people are up to it or not I wanted to say something else that I want everyone to hear and that is that according to our sages this day of the fast of Esther is particularly powerful in terms of its power to open the gates of heaven amen and it is, it is um, again, um, <clears throat> a powerful day for prayer. 
the purpose of this fast day, you know, you know, you know, most fast days, they have to do with uh, um, anguish. They have to do with it with a certain a kind of of um, <clears throat> of um, distress. You know that that we are crying out to Hashem. This fast day is different in that it is totally about praying from our, from the depths of our hearts. And what I want to say, what do I want to encourage everyone is don't waste this opportunity because it is, um, you know, Lamentations chapter two and verse 19 says, pour out your heart before Hashem, like water, pour out your heart like water. So this is the secret, the great secret of the day that our sages tell us is that the key to everything on the fast day of Esther is Psalms 22. Psalms 22 of Ayelet HaShachar is actually the, a pseudonym of Esther. And according to this <clears throat> tradition of our sages, Psalm 22 is the prayer that Esther prayed before she went into the king in her unauthorized, uh, uh, what do they call that, um, uh, wildcat, uh, you know, entrance to, mm -hmm. to, to the king. And so the idea is that on this day, we... Uh, we want to recite Psalm 22 and, th and think about it and internalize it and, and think very, very deeply about those words. And we, want, and we want to pray to Hashem, to cry out to him. And this is all in the merit of Mordechai and Esther and what they went through during, during this whole period. And uh, this is something that our, that our sages stress and emphasize that this day is extremely powerful for evoking heavenly mercy, for prayers being said. Listen, a per person can pray every day. And if you're hearing this and you did not hear it in, in time for Wednesday, March 16th, and you, and you did not fast or you did not pray, that's okay. No guilt, no pressure, no angst whatsoever, because every day is a special day. Every single day is the first day of our lives. Every single day is the first day that we are waking up to our relationship with Hashem. Every single day, Hashem, promises to hear all of our prayer but i'm but i'm just saying if you if you are hearing this you should know that there are certain times that are more propitious than others historically and this is one of those days one of those days is the recitation of psalm 22 on ta'anit esther on the fast of esther has the power to open the gates of heaven when it is when it is coming forth from a from a sincere and broken heart there's nothing as good as a broken heart that's not a heart that is depressed or a heart that is morbid or that, that is that is constantly in a state of morose. It means that you that you are able to to isolate some time, invest some time during that day of an otherwise joyful countenance to be broken before Hashem. And because that's how we get in touch with our inner essence. <clears throat> that's how the gates of mercy are are opened. And so this is a day that Hashem promises to to receive every every prayer. First, we recite Psalm 22, and then and then we go to town with all the things that are important to us. And it's like I said to a room full of people, <clears throat> raise your hand if you don't need special help from right? yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm looking at all these faces like it is in a Zoom, right? Anybody here who doesn't feel that they want an, an extra opportunity for their prayer to be heard, raise your hand, right? Nobody's going to raise their hand. <clears throat> who doesn't want a, a, an opportunity like this? So I'm just saying, please. Don't waste it. Invest even a couple of minutes, even a couple of minutes on the fest of Esther to pour out your heart before Hashem. Look at the world that we live in. Look at the, at the incredible, twisted, diabolical <clears throat> plots of all the Hamans in our generation. 
and think about these patterns in time and the divine design and everything that we are studying about the essence of Purim and the revelation of the hidden that Jim is, is about to tell us. And, and remember, it, every time we are involved in Torah, every time we are involved in the observance of a festival or a special day, it's about bringing it home. It's never about a commemoration. It's about the, the power that, that it resonates. <clears throat> I'm so sorry. <laughs> throughout all of history, throughout all time, it's it, we are part of a pattern of divine design, part of a pattern in time, part of this great tapestry, the great scroll of Esther that we are revealing and telling over of our own lives. And, and so we can, you know, be, uh, be a part of that by understanding the, the deepest message in the world. And this is how I think, you know, Purim is just as relevant to Noahides, to, to all people who love Hashem, whether they're Jews or not. And, and, you know, the Jewish people are commanded to, to read the Megillah twice. They're commanded to do the, the gifts to the poor, and they're commanded to have this special meal and to, and to send the gifts of food. Do Noahides have to keep all of these commandments? They certainly can if they want. But the main thing that every person who loves Hashem and who, and who finds truth in the Torah, the main thing that should be emphasized, I believe, on these days of Purim, beginning, beginning with the Festive Esther, is I am looking for Hashem in my life. And to, and to have that fortitude and wherewithal to cry out to Hashem, every single one of us, Jew and non-Jew, to cry out to Hashem, Hashem, where are you? Where are you? I know you're there. I know you're there, desperately avoiding me, <laughs> desperately avoiding that I should that I should find you. And I know that that's only because you love me so much and you, and you know that the more I look for you, the more real it will be the relationship when I finally am able to cut through the cobwebs of my own denial and see you in every aspect of my life. And that's really the goal of, isn't it? And Jim, isn't that the goal of every single day of our lives, not just Purim, that we, uh, it's all about bringing Hashem's presence into this world. The way that we do that is by bringing it into our own lives. And this must be one of the reasons why the sages tell us that Purim, essentially, in many, in many levels, in, in a sense, on one, on one plane of understanding, Purim is the highest day of the year. Yeah. That even Yom Kippur, even Yom Kippur, which is the great joyous day of atonement and forgiveness and starting all over again. In Hebrew, Yom Kippur is called Yom HaKippurim, which literally means, literally reads as the day like Purim. Right. It's Yom Kippur with all of the holiness of the high priest going into the into the Holy of Holies on that day. It's only a shadow, a fleeting glimpse, a little reflection of Purim. Because on Purim, the high priest goes into the into the Holy of Holies by himself. But on Pur, I mean, on Yom Kippur, but on Purim, every person can become the high priest, and not just by dressing up as the high priest. Every person can become on that level by really understanding this idea of the divine design in our lives. And that's why we've been emphasizing for, you know, in so many talks that we've had about, about preparing for Purim, that the real idea of the joy that, that is emphasized to us in Adar and in the concept of Purim is that, yes, I don't see him. Yes, look at the world today. Yes, his, his hand is revealed, is, is, not, is not revealed. And yes, Amalek, the spirit of Amalek, which of course, as everybody knows, the word Amalek has the gematria, the numerical equivalent of doubt, because the, the biggest problem, the biggest power, the, the biggest tool that this that these forces in the world have is to cast doubt on everything. It's right. to say, nah, I don't think there's a God here. Come on, man. It's all a coincidence and, and all that kind of thing. And that is the deepest poison, that spirit of doubt. 
and 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 that's the whole idea about about Purim. And I'll, I'm so sorry for going on and on and on, but I'm getting excited. I'll stop now. The idea about Purim is no, there is no doubt. There is no doubt. And even like you're about to say, history has also even tried to hide yes. the truth. This is a wonderful sort of segue because prayers that you speak of during this fast should be used to, to look for God's hand in our everyday lives, which is the whole theme of the, of the book of Esther, is that God is behind the scenes. And for us to remember this in our prayers, God, help us see that. Help us see that the simplest things is, is the hand of God. Help me see Help me see that I am not alone in this right, world. I right. am not alone. Because that voice that tells me that I'm alone, give it, give it up, mm-hmm. give it up, and nothing matters, that is Amalek. If you want to yeah. know where Amalek is right now, he is alive and well, that spirit, in every person who... If it feels isolated from Hashem. That's that's all Amalek wants is to get us to think that it's all hopeless. The verse in Exodus seventeen fourteen, which is a reference to Amalek, it's to blot out his memory. The name Haman appears fifty four times in Megillah Esther, and the gematria of this verse that says to blot out the memory of Amalek. The gematria is 54. One of the reasons that Hashem wants us to blot out the memory of Amalek is because Amalek is alive and well in all of those who want to blot out the memory of God's miracles for his people and for the rest of us in this world. It's measure for measure. The message is that he is competing for godlike status yeah and he and his whole thing is no there there is no god i'm god exactly that's exactly it because every person that stands up and says there is no god these things didn't happen they are worshiping at their own personal idol and say this i know exactly the the secret of these verses in 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 um, exodus 17 Right. This is this is uh, at the war with Rifidim when Amalek attacked Israel mm-hmm. after the splitting of the sea. Right. Israel, for no reason, Amalek just because they could and because they were Jews, Amalek attacked the Jews. Right. And so we read in Exodus 17, 14, Hashem, 14, Hashem said to, Mo, to Moshe, write this as a remembrance in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I shall surely erase the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. It's Hashem talking. It's, it's mm-hmm. his war, right? He says, I will do it. Moses built an altar and called his name Hashem is my miracle. And he said, for the hand is on the throne of God. Hashem maintains a war against Amalek from generation to generation. So this verse is much, much um, talked about. And it's a very famous verse because it's so unusual, because there are two words that are written in this verse that are that are missing, missing letters. And of course, we, we know, and we never tire of discussing the fact that every letter in the Torah is exactly where it should be, even the letters that are missing. In other words, the letters that are missing convey a message just as much as the letters that are present. So that in Hebrew, the verse says, Vayomer ki yad al kes ya which literally means there is a hand on the throne of Hashem. But the word kisei, which is normally written with an aleph on the end, it's missing the aleph. So it's an abbreviated form of the word. It's, it's, it's kind of like blemished the word, in other words, because there's a letter missing. And so too, only half of Hashem's name is mentioned. Kiyad al instead of saying kiyad al Hashem. And so there are basically two ways that the verse can be understood. One way to understand it is that this hand 
that's being referred to is like a is like an expression of a vow, mm-hmm. because this is something that we find throughout the Tanakh. You know, the, there's an, an idea of the, of a hand being placed as, and expressing a vow. So one way of looking at the verse is that Hashem himself is making a vow by his hand that he has a vendetta against Amalek. But the other way of looking at it, which I, I think is the truth, is that the hand that's being referred to is Amalek's hand, and that Amalek is literally trying to obliterate Hashem's presence. And that's why the words are written in the form that they are missing, because the, the message of the verse is that the, the throne of Hashem cannot be complete. Neither can the name of Hashem in this world be complete, so long as Amalek uh, endures because Amalek's whole essence is to blot out Hashem's presence and his name. And therefore there's this hand, like it's, it's as if there's a hand like over the lens, yeah. trying to, trying to cover up the, the lens, trying to cover up Hashem's presence. That's really the truth of what the verse means. And that's an eternal battle. It's, it's, and that's again, a, a major theme of these days and of, and of Purim is for us to confront that force and understand that it's our responsibility to magnify Hashem's name in the world. Amalek tries to tear apart the record keeping and the keeping of the calendar. Daniel even warned us about those who would seek to change the times and the seasons. One of the things he's talking about is the is the changing of the calendar, literally hiding away certain days. It may have started with the destruction of the of the temple, which happened, and they'll say, in 587 BCE. Well, according to the Jewish chronology, which is called uh, Seder HaOlam, it happened in 423 BCE. But I look to Seder HaOlam because it really puts all these things in perspective. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 3338. They began the construction, and it was halted with the help of who, Rabbi? Sanballat? In the book of Nehemiah, he speaks of the problems that were that were brought on by Sanballat, who laughed everybody to scorn that was trying to, to rebuild the temple and even warned the Persians. And what's interesting about that is if you look into the hundreds and hundreds of letters and correspondence written in what is now known as the Elephantine Papyri, written by the Jewish community in the Egyptian uh, town of Elephantine, These were Jews who lived during the time of the Persian Empire. They lived in Egypt. And they write a letter to Sanballat. So here's his name invoked in a letter from the Jewish community in Egypt. Sanballat was there on, on behalf of the Persian military. This is the guy responsible for halting the reconstruction of the temple. So, so, so Cyrus ordered the construction of the temple. Exactly correct, and that was that was actually indeed seventy years uh, after the the first stage of the exile. And um, I don't know the year that I'm familiar with in, in the Hebrew year was was three three nine zero. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know, I, I don't know if you could, if you agree with that or not. That Cyrus had ordered the construction, but then in three three nine two, Achashverosh became the king, and he ordered the cessation of the of of the construction of the temple. Right. Three three nine four. That's when that's when he concluded that that um, seventy years dating from Yechaniah's exile had ended, but actually it had only been sixty seven calendar years. 
but but he um, followed what, what I what I'm reading here is he followed the ancient custom of counting a fraction of a royal year as a full year. In any event, um, the the sages explained to us that the banquet that lasted for 180 days, six months, about, goodness, yes, in uh, the, as the story of Esther unfolds, that whole lavish pagan banquet was actually a celebration of the fact that the the temple had not yet been rebuilt, and as far as he was concerned, as far as his calculations, it was not going to be rebuilt because he was convinced that God forgot about his people, and because again he was so hidden, and that it was not going to happen. And at this banquet, he actually publicly mocked everything holy. He was wearing the garments of the high priest. He was serving all sorts of dishes out of the, um, the goblets and temple, the temple vessels and, yeah. and, and everything. And it was all about, you know, like, and one might wonder when they hear this, like, what's the big deal? Like, what? So, you know, the, the Mormons have their temple, the Jews have their temple, these people have their church. What's the obsession that he was so concerned about? But again, this is the idea of what this force represents. Is that, and by the way, the sages, you know, there's a, there's this common misconception that most people have that Haman was like diabolical, absolutely evil. And Akashverosh is like this uh, amenable, jolly, roly poly, drunken king that he just took off his ring and he went over it and he went along with it and he said to Haman, whatever you whatever you say. But the truth is that that Ahasuerus was a greater uh, enemy and a greater and a bigger hater and a more evil person even than Haman was. But uh, when Esther came into him the first time and said and said and he said, "What is your request, Esther? And it shall be granted until half of the kingdom." He literally meant until half of the kingdom, because if you, right. if you measure out from, from Shushan uh, on a globe, half of his kingdom w- would bring you exactly to Jerusalem. And so basically what he was saying to her was, you can ask me anything, just don't ask me to rebuild the temple because there, there's not room enough in this world for both of us. Yeah. That, exactly that. I can't share the stage with, with Hashem. And so that banquet was a, uh, a um, deliberate, um, just a burlesque, it was a burlesque of everything holy. And the irony, when we study about it, it just, it's almost too real, too contemporary, too painful to, to read about, is that uh, with the exception of Mordechai, who was the leader of the Sanhedrin in exile, and he, and he was a, a bold individual, as you know, he's the only person who didn't bow down to Haman. Yeah. Um, and Haman had an, an, an idol also hanging around his neck that he actually wanted everyone to bow down to. But in, in a, in, with his exception, every other member of the Jewish community was at that party. Yeah. The, the idea. The expression about Washington politics, somebody once said, the yeah. only thing worse than, than not being in, than, than, than being there is not being there. Yeah. Right. So, so the Jews all went. And the, the Midrash portrays this and, and, un, and un, unveils to us a chilling. Uh, idea, um, and that is that they, you know, they, they. Now you have to understand the Jews all went to the bank, the banquet, and it was strictly kosher. Okay, Hashemish <laughs> wanted all of his Jewish friends and and patsies and and constituents uh, to be there, so he made sure that it was only the best level of kashrut. You know, all the top. A kosher certifying agencies were there and, and all the food was probably double wrapped in tin foil and everything like that. So all the Jews were at the banquet. But then when they saw Ahasuerus donning the priestly garments and making fun of the temple, making fun of the God of Israel, they started to cry. But, and this is the chilling part, 
Well, but they still didn't want to. They still didn't want to leave. Mm-hmm. They still didn't want to leave, and so and tell me that this isn't like 2022, right? The the sages with their incomparable clairvoyant wisdom. So what happens? So they're all crying because they're they're they're, it's so painful to them to to see. But finally, they feel like, oh, I'm one of us, you know. Like I was invited. I was invited. You know, I'm 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 at the party. You know, that means that we that we count. We're important. We're influential. We're you know we have a voice. We're part of the community. So, but then they were crying to see uh, the mockery, and so uh, crying over their kosher food. So, what did Achashverosh do? He gave them their own room, and so there they sat separately, so that they didn't have to watch what was going on next door. But my point is. They cried, but they stayed. Mm-hmm. But they stayed. And to me, if I might say something from my heart, which is a little bit strong, that's exactly what is going on today. And that is the concept of of our exile today in foreign lands. Yeah, you know, we 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 may be crying, but there is this idea. I'm so happy to be accepted, and and so they stay. They and through their tears. And through all the conveniences of 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 uh, everything they've been able to erect for themselves, as far as as far as the, the nuances of Jewish life, they cry, but they stay. And one thing that is central to the theme of the Scroll of Esther and the story of the miracle is the centrality of the land of Israel. Right. And that that the whole thing is about getting up and repenting and coming back. To the land of Israel to to yes rebuild the, the temple. That's what this the, the and 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 the real really the backstory the backdrop of the whole story of Esther is you could rename it or at least give it a subtitle. It was the struggle to rebuild the holy temple. Yeah, you know the the ruins that are now exist in Shushan. One of the main features of the ruin in this ancient city that was the it was like the winter capital of the Persian Empire. The ruins in Shushan. The, uh, have revealed a, a massive hall that they call the Apadana. Our archaeologists tell you that that hall, which is where we believe this celebration actually was centered, could easily accommodate 10,000 guests. So that that brings it down into a, a place of reality. That is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. You're telling me that archaeologists actually can pinpoint the, the place in which this banquet took place? Yeah, in fact, they it even underscores the idea that the sages have told us, Rabbi, that the, the story of Esther takes place in the capital area, around the palace, around this hall, and then the outer city, which is where people like you and I, the commoners... Wait a minute here, speak for yourself. <laughs> The, the nobles lived in this, I, I believe it was, it was called uh, Shushan Buria, if I'm remembering the phrase. And then you had Shushan proper, so to speak, where the rest of the citizenry uh, lived. You mentioned Haman wearing an idol. It's no surprise to me that Cyrus became an instrument of Hashem, because from everything I can determine, Cyrus was a Noahide. In this, yes. res- in this respect, Cyrus established the official religion of the Persian Empire. Do you remember what it was called? It was called Zoroastrianism. And it was started by a prophet called Zoroaster. In the Persian tongue, the early Persian tongue, they didn't call him Zoroaster. That's what the Greeks called him. They called this person Zarathustra. I don't want to take away from your idea that he was a, a Noahide, but I'm not sure how righteous he was because although Hashem does borrow this phrase in Isaiah, 
60, is it? And refer to him as my anointed. My Mashiach. Because he stirred, because he stirred him up. He stirred him up yeah. with a certain spirit to be, to be part of the process of, of bringing the people of Israel back to their land. Yeah. But yes, initially he did give permission to, the, to rebuild the temple, but later he, uh, he kind of, um, uh, put his foot out to trip them as well. He mm-hmm. didn't. He didn't. Yeah. He, his support. His support was not consistent. Because he, first of all, he was more politician than he was a, a religious person. But he did make it the official religion of the empire. Now, by the way, I have to stress that today's ideas of this religion is nothing like the the religion that was practiced in the days of King Cyrus and later the Persian people. It was a monotheistic religion. They had one God called Ahura Mazda, and this one God taught to seek truth, to banish idols, and it taught free will. As a sidebar, if the, if everything I've read about Zoroaster in his original teachings, I, I, I kind of wonder if this isn't one of the children or one of the descendants of Avraham Avinu, because what did Avraham do after he married Keturah and had sons? He sent them away with gifts to the east, Barosus. He was a Babylonian historian and a priest. He says that in the time of Cyrus, he says that there were no idol, there was no idol worship in Persia. The reason I bring this up is because Haman was one of the people who began to introduce idol worship in the Persian Empire. So this is an added um, uh, element of oppression. Ahasuerus was nothing like the prior Persian kings. Not that these guys were, you know, models of perfection, but they did have a sense of what was right and what is wrong. Ahasuerus, who, by the way, is never called that in Persian history. That's what the Jews called him. That's what he's called literally in the pages of uh, Miguel Esther. It was a play on his title and his name. His name, his name was Hashayarsha, and he's even called that rabbi in the Egyptian records of the Persian kings. Anybody who sits down to study the story of Esther and wants to prove that it's history, they will find nothing but confusion because the Greeks and the scholarly realm have, have hidden these things away from us by clouding them. so remarkable. It's, it's almost like there was like a... Like a um... A, a goal to to obscure the very story itself. This there, there is like was. an added dimension, you know, the, to the whole concept of of uh, of Esther being hidden. You know, there there is a, a, a statement that our sages make a teaching, and they say, "Where is there an allusion to Esther in the Torah?" You know, meaning in the five books of Moses. Right. And the answer, it's the verse in Deuteronomy thirty-one and verse eighteen, and I will hide my face because actually, there is a. Um, an interesting, a double is called a double kind of expression in that verse in Deuteronomy. In Hebrew, it reads "va'anochi hasder astir, hasder astir panai," which means "I shall surely, I shall verily hide my face." And both of those words, the the root of them, of course, is hiddenness, and the second word actually reads like Esther. So, uh, commenting on this on on the spot in that verse, Rashi tells us that in the days of Esther, there will be a concealment of the divine presence. But the whole idea is that that concealment really uh, continued throughout history because the because what was at stake was the revelation of the divine presence through the concealment, and therefore there seems to be this 
goal almost of of the power, certain powers that be to make sure that people don't really understand that this even happened. The mind begins to reel when you read uh, Megillah Esther and you begin to see unfolding all through it the, the idea of concealment and revelation and concealment and revelation. When Haman went to Ahasuerus and said, there is a certain people, the Jews were monotheist, why would there be a problem? It shows you again, idol worship was being promoted. And Haman was one of the people that wanted to see the worship of idols returned because that would that would cast doubt upon the Hebrew God. Did he really have a problem with the, with all the people of, of Persia? He had a problem with no. one with one guy. He had a problem with Mordechai, and he Mordechai. wanted to take it out on the whole. Right, people. and so what did he do? He hid the name of the person he hated, because he didn't think he could convince the king unless it was a an empire wide problem. Esther apparently doesn't know about the plot at first, and uh, Mordechai immediately responds by doing what? He dons sackcloth, he dumps ashes on his head, and he does something that's very uncharacteristic for this leader of the Jewish community. He goes out in this state of looking ragged and his face and hair covered with ashes, and he cries out in the streets of Shushan. And finally, this is how Esther learns of this. And I, I want our listeners to think about that and it had a, what an impact this must have had on the people, not just the Jews, but the people of, of all the populace of Shushan to call attention to this disaster that was impending and about to happen to the Jewish people. Wasn't there some debate among the Sanhedrin as to how public we make this holiday? You know, Esther and Mordecai said, let's publish this in the realm. Let's celebrate this every year forever. And, right. and so there was some discussion with the Sanhedrin. There was an, an idea that perhaps that would, that would uh, increase the ire uh, of, the, of the, uh, their, their Persian hosts. And so yeah. there was an idea that, well, maybe we shouldn't, we shouldn't really laud it over them, that, that God made this tremendous delivery for us. And you have to ask yourself today, when you look into the country of Iran, do they recognize there was an Esther and a Mordecai? Do they so recognize? First of all, there is a, there is a tomb of, of Mordechai and Esther in Iran. But exactly. The, but the interesting conversation that's recorded, I know you have a lot to say about this, is that is that Esther, um, you know, she sought from the sages uh, that the, that Purim should be established in every in every every year uh, in recognition of Hashem's miracles, and then some of the sages responded, but that will make the 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 the, um, the nation of Persia, you know. Um, angry at us and she responded but i'm but my story is already written in the annals of persia and Med and media in a way it was difficult to find and then i was reading a, a wonderful little book by uh, rick Ahrens, but he points out that one of the aspects of it was that we had to defend ourselves and we had to kill persians to do it and that, without raising their ire in self-defense we, we can hide Here's that word again. We can hide the, the celebration of Purim within one of their national holidays. Well, Rick doesn't, he suggests one holiday, but I wasn't, I wasn't really um, satisfied with it. So I went looking and it was right there in front of us the whole time. Today, in modern Iran, they've been celebrating, they think, goes back 3,000 years, Rabbi. 
and it's the holiday that's called Nauruz. Nauruz means a new day, and it, it happens at the spring equinox. March 20th or 21st is the uh, beginning of spring. It's also the day that this holiday is celebrated in Persia, in, in Iran today. They've been celebrating this, this holiday, Nauruz, for over 3,000 years. And it's a holy day that's passed down from the Zoroastrians or Zoroastrians. The last Wednesday that is supposed to precede their New Year celebration. And it's called Chaharshanba uh, Suri. I think I got that out right. What they do is they celebrate this last Wednesday. The people wear disguises. They go door to door, banging spoons against plates. All right. And during this same holiday, they have a character who roams the streets that they call Haji Firuz. He dances in the streets. He sings as his face is covered with soot. Wow. And by the way, all of these sorrows of the Jews have been turned to joy to a celebration. So you have this figure who's like there. And, and by the way, when you read in the, the Persian uh, websites, the Iranian websites, they liken this, cel this celebration of Nauruz, they liken it to like our Halloween because of the disguises that people wear. And, and interestingly, I, I thought, why does the pots and pans, the banging on that, why does that sound familiar to me? What happens when you read the Megillah Esther, Rabbi? Out we bang out the name of Haman. Every time Haman's name is right. heard, people make noise. They have more noisemakers. I, I forget what they're called, but the the uh, um, a grogger, a grogger. Yeah, it makes this it makes this horrible like like uh, rattling sound. And so this is this piece <laughs> that these people carry on with that is that sounds to me remarkably like an echo of of the the people of the the Persians picking up. You know, because remember, many of them even converted in, in, in because of, of what had happened. Friday is the last day of that's isn't that Shushan Purim? Friday Shushan Purim, yes. Okay, on the on our calendar, that following Sunday, I think it's Sunday, Sunday or Monday is March twentieth, the day they celebrate Nauruz, their New Year in in Iran. And having said all this, Jim, which is absolutely so amazing and so phenomenal how you are able to um, bring all of this together. I note the state of tension between Israel and um, ancient Persia, a.k.a. Iran today. Do you? An an, uh, yes, I do. <laughs> an ongoing state of extreme, uh, extreme tension um, tinged with nuclear possibilities and uh, yeah, it's still going on, this cycle of um, hiddenness and revelation and confrontation and um, struggle. And um, the best is yet to come. The story is not over yet. And by the way, um, hidden in the ground for centuries until they began to dig at the palace in Shushan, they found uh, what they, they call the foundation tablets. And there, there are hundreds and hundreds of tablets. There are four uh, times we find an official from the time of, of Darius mentioned on these tablets who's called Mordecai. Wow. 
Darius the Great, who is said to be, the, who many believe is the son of Esther, because, because Ahasuerus did not live long after the events of Purim. And, and we mentioned this last year, there is an inscription called the Behistun inscription that shows this giant figure of King Darius, and it mentions a nationwide revolt that was started by seven of his, his advisors. And the day of the revolt is also the, the date of, of Purim. So comprehensive, Jim. You've really shed a tremendous amount of light on the historicity of all of this, um, all of the, the whole story. And of course, um, just as you have um, succeeded in pinpointing so many details about the Exodus from Egypt, you've really given us a very well-rounded portrait of the whole evolution of the story of Purim. May we truly merit to see that there is um, that that idolatry truly is diminished and wiped out from the face of the earth. All forms of idolatry may we truly merit to the revelation of Hashem's presence in in every aspect of our lives, which is the whole goal of not only of Purim, but of every day, but it's it's so within reach during these days. And so it speaks to us and resonates to us so strongly from the Megillah and from this pattern in time that we are reliving, not just commemorating, but, but reliving. May we merit to really open up our hearts on the fast day of Esther and, and um, really pour out our hearts but like water before Hashem and, and, uh, Kind of get his attention with our with our sincerity and uh, and call out to him from the depths of our hearts and may we merit to the source of the joy of Purim, which is the the knowledge that Hashem is with us, no matter how things seem, no matter how random, no matter how coincidental. May we truly understand that Hashem's presence is always always with us, and that He is waiting for us to. Step up to the plate just as Esther did for a time like this and all of us in all of our circumstances and situations of where we are at the right time and the right place. It's all part of Hashem's plan for us to bring about the revelation of His of His presence throughout our everyday lives. Amen. Have a wonderful Purim, Jim. I Have will. Have a wonderful, joyous week and we wish Chag Sameach, Purim Sameach to all of our wonderful listeners. Shalom, shalom.